Our passage today is John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. I'll read from the ESV. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered him, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law that I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and for the word that became flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we sit in the presence of uh, your word today. We pray, Lord, that you enable us to understand and uh, what it has to teach us, and how we are to apply it in our lives, Lord. So we pray for your Spirit's leading and guidance uh, in these matters. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Have you seated? So, as we read this passage, we read that it is in the context of a feast. It's a feast called the Feast of Dedication. Now, of all the feasts that's mentioned in the New Testament and the Gospels, this one is kind of unique because it actually is not an authorized feast. What, what do we mean by that? It means that it is not one of the feasts that is found in the Old Testament. It was a new feast that commemorated recent history in Jerusalem. See, what had happened was about maybe 100 years prior, in about 167 BC, the Syrian emperor Antiochus Epiphanes conquered the city of Jerusalem. Now the word Epiphanes means God manifest. So this, this uh, emperor considered himself to be God. And when he conquered Jerusalem, he polluted and defiled the temple because he considered himself God. He replaced the altar of God in the temple with a pagan altar, with an altar that 
uh, basically forced people to worship himself and his God. And then he set a degree saying that you could not possess the Hebrew scriptures. So their Bible, they could not possess it. And if anyone was found having the Hebrew scriptures, they would be put to death. And then every month they were to sacrifice, make a human sacrifice in the temple to Antiochus Epiphanes. So when the temple was defiled, the Jewish people engaged in, um, you know, in, in a rebellion that was led by the Maccabees. There were three brothers who took the leadership in that rebellion and they managed to recapture the temple after Antiochus had actually gone back to his homeland. Once they recaptured the temple, they rededicated the temple to the service of God. They consecrated it, you could say, to service of God in the month of December. And they created an eight-day feast to celebrate that dedication, that consecration of the temple. And that feast is actually called Hanukkah, which, as many of you may know, is one of the feasts that coincides with the Christmas period and is celebrated even today. It is called the Feast of Lights. So during this feast, in this winter time, we find that Jesus is walking in the section of the temple that's called the Colonnade of Solomon. During the feast in which the temple's rededication to God is being celebrated. And Jewish, op Jewish opposition to Jesus has been building because he has said many things and he has done many wonders that have implied that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, that he is equal to God, that he is God himself. But the one thing that the Jews lack is that they have not publicly heard him say that he is God, which would give them a reason to arrest him and execute him for blasphemy as per their laws. And you can see in this passage, you know, there's a lot of details that we won't get into too much depth. They ask Jesus to state plainly whether he is God. And he says, yes, he is God. He is the only son of God. He is the Messiah. But he doesn't say that explicitly so that they could use it as proof to arrest and kill him. Because the time for Jesus to die had not come. And he, he would not go to the cross under anybody else's initiative other than his own because his life was his to give and not for any human being to take without his consent. So there's that aspect where Jesus is stating that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, indirectly in response to the Jews' questions. But in this passage, you also find John trying to make a point about Jesus and his followers. You know, this passage directly follows the passage about the good shepherd in John chapter 10. John chapter 10 verse 11 says that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 4 and 5, it says when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So this is the passage, you know, where we find the concept of the good shepherd and the sheep. And we see those same concepts spill over into the passage we just read, where Jesus tells the Jews that they do not believe in him, in his words, his works, because they are not his sheep. And he's not their shepherd. So there's that aspect of differentiation being brought out between Jesus and the people who oppose him, and between the people or the disciples of Jesus and those who do not belong to him. But there's also another point that John wishes to bring out. You see, he doesn't just give us 
information, in this case, information about the fact that this was happening during the festival of dedication just to tell us that this happened in December, as important as that is for historical purposes. He's telling us something about Jesus in relation to the festival. If you read the Gospel of John, you have already seen that Jesus is the one who fulfills the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath because Sabbath was made for man to come to God and to find rest in God. And he is the one who will indeed provide the rest that the Sabbath is pointing to. John has already shown that Jesus is the one who fulfills the Passover. Just as a lamb was sacrificed every Passover, he is the lamb of God who will be sacrificed, who will die in order to bring about the ultimate redemption of God's people from slavery, which is the redemption of his people from the slavery of sin, the exodus of people from sin into salvation. Similarly, we see John uses the Feast of Tabernacles earlier to bring out the fact that Jesus is true water and true light, which was an important theme. Water and light was an important theme in the Feast of Tabernacles. So basically, John uses the Jewish feast to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these feasts, of all their expectations about God, of all their desires for God's salvation and peace and rest. He is the one who fulfills all of them. So similarly, this passage is being set up to show that Jesus is somehow the fulfillment of this feast, the feast of dedication and what it points to. He's the one who is truly dedicated to God and not the physical temple because he is the temple himself. You know, in the John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Then the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They're talking about rebuilding the temple after Antiochus uh, destroyed it. And you're saying you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So he is the temple. And so we come to a festival which is celebrating the dedication or the rededication of the temple to God. So you see the setup in this passage in verse uh, 24 and 25, chapter 10. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The Jews just want Jesus to quit saying things indirectly and say once and for all explicitly that he is God so that they can finally get rid of him and put him to death. But as we said, Jesus' ministry and death would only occur on his watch, on his time. So we get this exchange. But that does not mean that Jesus did not say that he was God. It just means that he did not say directly that he was God. For example, in verse 28 to 30, it says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's talking about the sheep and him as the shepherd. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. So he's saying snatching the sheep out of his hand is like snatching the sheep out of the Father's hand. So his work in keeping them is the same as the Father's work. So he and the Father are one. So if not directly, Jesus had made the claim, has already made the claim here that he is God. And the Jews recognize this and they pick up stones to stone him. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 32 to 33, seeing that they're about to stone him, Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of you are, going, are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. So here the situation is dangerous. But Jesus kind of diffuses that situation. He, he kind of lowers the tension or the temperature a little bit by then making an appeal to the Old Testament. In verse 34 to 36, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said your gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. So this is a very technical argument that we do not have too much time to unpack. What he's referring to is Psalm 82 and verse six, where it says that Israel, the sons of Israel are called gods. They're specifically called sons of God. And the reason why they're called sons of God is because they were the ones to whom God revealed himself through the word. So they have a claim to be familiar and intimate and have a relationship with God that other people do not have. Therefore, they are called sons. So Jesus says, you are already called sons of God. So why do you have a problem when I call myself son of God? And you know that scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be made false. So are you going to stone me for saying something that you in a way say about yourself? Now both Jesus and the Jews know that his claim to be the son of God is orders of magnitude different than their claim to be sons of God. But for the purpose of Jewish requirements and the evidence that they need Jesus' argument is compelling from a legal perspective. And that stops the situation from escalating. So from a legal perspective, he's made the argument that I am saying something that you already say about yourself because it's written in the Bible. Even though behind it, everyone knew that what he was saying was different than what they were saying. So that stops the escalation but now comes the part that John does not want us to miss and that ties Jesus explicitly to the festival of dedication. It's in verse 36. Do you say of him of whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. So we said, what is this feast of dedication about? What is the feast of dedication of the temple about? It's about, it is related to the fact that after they recovered the temple from the Syrians, they consecrated it. They rededicated it back to the service of God. Dedication means consecration. The word consecration comes from the same word group as holiness and sanctification. All, they all belong to the same concept. Consecration, sanctification, and holiness. It means, consecration means to make something holy or to dedicate something to holiness in its relationship 
in its orientation, in its position. It means to set apart something for God or to set apart someone for God. And when you consecrate something, you're proclaiming three things about the thing or the person that you're consecrating. The first aspect of consecration is there's an aspect of identity. Consecration for whom, to whom. You see, what the Syrian emperor did, he replaced the altar of God with the altar of his God, thereby saying what? That this temple belongs to my God. The Jews took it back and consecrated it. They replaced the altar and they restored its identity as the temple of the living God. So they're saying, when we consecrate it, we are saying that this belongs to God. Or in a personal sense of identification, that I belong to God. That is the aspect of identity. Who do you belong to? And that identity marks you out as being different from others who do not share that identity, as being set apart from someone who does not have that identity. So there's the aspect of identity in consecration. Then there's the aspect of character. By declaring something as consecrated, as sanctified, you're making a claim about its character, specifically that it is holy. When you belong to God, God says in the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. You have to reflect the character of God because you belong to God. You have to be set apart from uncleanliness and defilement because that is opposed to the holiness. That is a requirement if you say that you belong to God. So in the temple, we know all the vessels and utensils. They went through this ritual where they were sanctified and cleansed and consecrated and they were never used for purposes that would render them unclean and therefore unfit to be used for God. So it is making a statement about character and behavior that in your character, in your behavior, the things and the people that belong to God are holy like he is holy. So there's the aspect of identity, there's the aspect of character, and then finally there's the aspect of purpose. What, when you consecrate something, when you dedicate something, you are dedicating it for some purpose. What are you doing with the thing that is being consecrated? What are you doing with your life? Specifically, it's a purpose to do something for God. If you go to Jeremiah chapter one and verse five, God says this about Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So G Jeremiah was consecrated by God with a purpose for God, which was to be a prophet to the nations. So there's the aspect of God's will for your life. The purpose to which you have been called and set apart by God, which is to please him and to do something for him. The temple was consecrated to God because it was to be used for the worship of God and for the people of God to come in and enter into the presence of God. And similarly, everything and everyone that is consecrated is making a claim that I have a purpose to accomplish for God, to do the will of God in my life. So there's the aspect of identity, there's the aspect of character, and there's the aspect of purpose. And so Jesus says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world that you are blaspheming? In verse 36. All of these aspects are the connotations of consecration, which is tied to the festival of dedication. John is saying, they all point to Jesus that Jesus not only fulfills the expectations of the festival, 
but he fulfills them perfectly. So just like Jesus, he's the perfect bread and the perfect drink in that whoever feeds on him will never hunger again or thirst again. So also, John is trying to tell us he is the perfectly consecrated one. He's the one who's perfectly set apart for God. And he's the one who fulfills every aspect of consecration perfectly, completely. Here we see that he's not consecrated by men. The temple was consecrated by men. But he's consecrated by God himself and sent into the world, set apart by God for a purpose. In terms of identity, we have already seen that he and the Father is one. So where everything and everyone else that is consecrated makes the claim that they belong to God, Jesus says that he's equal to God. He is God. So in terms of identity, the difference between belonging to God and being God is an order of magnitude different. He perfectly fulfills the aspect of identity and consecration. He is God. We all belong to God. We are on a journey to become, to, to develop, the, develop the behavior and the character that make us more suitable for our calling to be the sons of God. But Jesus is the son of God. He is God. So he's perfect in the identity to which he is consecrated. Then in terms of his character, we have seen that people and things that are set apart to God develop in holiness. They develop, they have a starting point and they become more and more holy. But they are not perfect in holiness. The plates and the vessels that were used in the temple, they become unclean through use and they have to be washed again and they have to be made fit again. The people of God like us, we are declared as sanctified, but we are progressing in sanctification. We are becoming more holy. We have been declared as holy, but there's a starting point and we are progressing towards the ending point. We are not there yet. We are still tempted, we still sin, but Jesus is perfect in his character and in his nature, in his holiness. In him, as John later writes in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5, in him there is no sin at all. He has never sinned. He has never been unclean. He does not need to be cleansed from any defilement that arises from unrighteousness. He has never bro broken the law. He has perfectly fulfilled the law. He's perfect in obedience to God. He's perfect in reflecting the character of God. So he's perfectly consecrated in terms of his character. And then finally, in terms of his purpose, he was consecrated by God and sent into the world with a purpose to do the will of God and to do the works of God. So here he challenges the Jews to prove that he is not doing the works of God. The purpose with which he was sent in verse 37 and 38, it says, if I'm not doing the works of God, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He accomplishes the will of God perfectly, the purpose of God perfectly, that he can make the claim that if you do not believe in my identity, that if you do not believe in my character, then look at my testimony 
and just believe in that and you will see and understand that God, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He accomplishes the purpose of God perfectly as we read later in Philippians. He's obedient so perfectly to the point of giving up his life on the cross to pay for the sins of the people of God so that they could be saved and redeemed that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's perfect in carrying out the will of God. So he's perfect in his consecrated identity. He's perfect in his consecrated character. He's perfect in his consecrated purpose. But in a sense, in this last aspect of consecration, more than anything, Jesus is different than anyone else. For everyone else to be sanctified, perfect, or to be sanctified in your character is the end goal. When the Bible says that we will be made perfect, it is making a statement that we will be sanctified as perfectly as human beings can be sanctified in a day that is yet to come. That is the end goal. But for Jesus, it is not the end goal. It is a means, it is the means to his end goal, which we find in John chapter 17, verses 17 and 19. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus speaks to the Father and he prays, sanctify them. He's saying, sanctify my disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. Then in verse 19, he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. So he says in verse 17, God, make my disciples, my followers, my people, make them holy, declare them holy, set them apart, separate them from the world into your service. Use your truth, which is the word, so that when they believe in it, they are set apart, they are declared as consecrated, they are declared as sanctified. And then you come to verse 19 and Jesus says, for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified and they may be set apart. What is he trying to say? He's saying that the means for the sanctification or the consecration of his people is his own consecration, is his own sanctification. Specifically, what Jesus is saying is that he sets himself apart so perfectly to do the Father's will, which in this case means that he is going to die on the cross. He dedicates himself to Calvary perfectly, not for himself alone, but for the sake of his disciples, for his disciples, because he is going to do for them what they cannot do for themselves, which is to pay the penalty for their uncleanliness, for their sin that keeps them apart from God. So he will bear the penalty for their uncleanliness and then he will bring his people into a relationship with God. So his consecration, the perfection of his sanctification leads to his death on the cross which is the means by which his disciples are then declared holy and brought out of the world into 
a relationship with God. He dies with a purpose so that we can be set apart from the world for God. By his death, we have been consecrated, we have been sanctified, we have been declared holy, clean, and set apart for God. So in the perfection of his consecration, we find that we have been redeemed and we have been set apart for God. Something that we could not do by ourselves. We could not wash ourselves clean. We could not make ourselves pure. We could not declare ourselves holy. That could only be done by God. And the one whom he sent into the world, who died to sanctify us, to consecrate us, and separate us from the world and unto God. So Jesus is the one who's perfectly dedicated to God. He's the temple which is perfectly consecrated. He's the person who's perfectly set apart for God. And that leads us to look at what John is trying to say about us. He's trying to say that then we are set apart for God. Then what are we to do? We see that those who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, they are also consecrated. But how does that impact us? How, what does that mean for us in our lives? And that is a topic that we can cover in a lot of detail, which we do not have time for today. But let us bring it back full circle to something Jesus has already said in this passage. And that is related to the sheep and him being the good shepherd. In verse 26 to 28 of chapter 10, he says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Then he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So here we see how Jesus describes a sheep and we can tie that into the aspects of consecration that we already saw. We are consecrated for God. So what is our identity? Jesus says, we are his sheep. We belong to Jesus. We belong to God. That is our identity. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, Peter talks about the same thing. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy or a sanctified or a consecrated nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out, who set you apart out of darkness into his marvelous light. So our identity when we are consecrated is that we belong to God, that we are God's people. So we are not people of the world, we are separated, we are set apart from the world. Then what about our character? The sheep has a characteristic that differentiates them from those who do not belong to the good shepherd. And what is that? My sheep hear my voice. Now in the next chapter, John chapter 11, we see this actually come to literal fulfillment. When Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and then he calls out to Lazarus who is dead and he comes out of the grave, out of death into life. In John chapter 20, we know the story of Mary Magdalene who goes to the tomb and thinking that someone stole Jesus' body after he was buried there without realizing that Jesus had resurrected. She's searching for him. Then he, she hears Jesus calling her by name. And she immediately recognizes him. So my sheep hear my voice. But beyond that, to hear his voice means to 
obey him and what he has said to us. In this passage, we have seen him say already that the scripture, the word is unbreakable. And we know from John's gospel chapter one, he is the word become flesh. So we have his voice in the word, the Bible that is given to us for our sanctification. When we are asked to hear his voice, we are asked to obey his word. Just like the shepherd has authority over the sheep, we are asked to provide the word of God, the word of the shepherd with authority over our lives and how we think and how we are to behave and how we are to act because the word of God is Jesus Christ. It is his word and we belong to him. So we have to hear his voice and not turn to the left or to the right from the path that the good shepherd has prescribed for us. So in terms of identity, we belong to Jesus. In terms of character, we had to hear his voice. We had to obey his word. Lastly, as those sanctified for God, what is our purpose? What is the purpose of the sheep? It is to follow the shepherd. It is to seek and to do his will. It is, as Peter said, to proclaim his excellencies because just like Lazarus, he has called us out of the darkness of death and sin into the marvelous light of God's salvation. It is to show the fruit of consecration, of sanctification in our life, the transformation of our behavior that marks us out as separate from the world. The testimony, the works, the testimony of our morality, of our ethics, of our behavior that differentiates us from the world. It is to be zealous to display the character of God. It is to be zealous for holiness so that we can be useful to God. Only those who are clean and sanctified can be made use of by God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21, Paul says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart, sanctified, consecrated as holy, therefore useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It is to be zealous to ensure that no sin, no uncleanliness, no defilement overtakes our minds and our bodies in such a way that it would prevent us from being in the service of our God who has separated us unto himself. So we need to ask ourselves, we need to tell ourselves, I am consecrated, I am set apart, I am separated from the world unto God. Do I reflect that in my life, in my thinking, in my ethics, in the things that I choose to do and invest my time in, in my testimony to others? Can they see by what, is, what I say and what I do that I'm different? I'm separate. I'm sanctified. That was Jesus' challenge to the Jews. If you do not listen to what I have to say, at least look at what I do. If we cannot examine ourselves and make that claim about ourselves, then we are not living up to the standard for which Jesus Christ died in order to sanctify us, 
to do what we could not do ourselves, which is to separate us from the world and make us the possession of God. Too often, we think that it is possible to show that we are a Christian in too many ways. Let me tell you, that is rare. It's more common that we do not show enough that we belong to Christ in our identity, in our character, in our purpose and the things that we do. We do not show enough that we are separate. Because too often it's just an intellectual thing. It is just a certificate that we have gotten and framed in our house which says that I'm a Christian, born again on this date, punched my ticket to heaven. And not enough in terms of the character and the testimony that marks us out as consecrated unto God, that marks us out as separate from the world and set apart for God. You know, during the time of slavery in the United States, there was a philosopher called Henry Thoreau who was so against slavery. Slavery was the dominant practice, it was evil, but everyone, pretty much everyone, including the state, the government, supported slavery. So he was so against it that he once went to jail. Rather than pay his tax to a government that supported slavery. And during this period he wrote an essay called Civil Disobedience, which you know inspired a lot of other people to do something similar. So he stopped paying tax. He's saying, I won't pay tax to a government that supports the evil practice, the dehumanizing practice of slavery. And then Thoreau had a good friend. His name was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Some of you may have, some of you may have heard of him. Hearing that he was in jail, uh, Emerson hurried to visit Thoreau in jail. And he looked through the bars and he exclaimed, Henry, Henry Thoreau, Henry, what are you doing in, in there? What are you doing in jail? And Thoreau was known for his sharp wit, quick wittedness. He said, Ralph, the question is, what are you doing out there? Because they both believed the same things. But only one of them had the testimony that indeed he was set apart. The sheep know the shepherd. The sheep are separated under the shepherd. Is that true in our lives? Are we consecrated? Are we following the example of our Lord in our identity, in our character, in our purpose? Just like he's the one perfectly set apart from the world and unto God. Can we say that we are on the journey? We are making progress to being set apart from the world 
and unto God. May we think about that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this time, for your grace and mercy and for the word that is given to us for its clarity and its uh, conviction in the statements that it makes about itself and that it makes about you and especially what it says about us. Too often, O oh Lord, we find ourselves lacking uh, in, the, in the character of holiness to which you have called, called us, that we do not show enough gratitude for the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord and Savior on the cross that has separated us and made us a possession for yourself. So we ask, oh Lord, that today as we remember that Jesus is the one who is perfectly set apart, that he's perfectly consecrated, not just for his own sake, but for our sake, so that we may be sanctified and consecrated in the truth. We pray, O oh Lord, that that aspect of holiness, of sanctification, will grow and grow in our lives till it is evident to the world, O oh Lord, that we are separate, that we are not like them, that we belong to someone else. And through that, O oh Lord, just like our Savior did to the Jews, may we be able to say that if you do not believe in what we have to say, at least look at what we are and what we do. And may that convince you of the reality of God, of the reality of the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he died for us so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. Give us the courage and the conviction, O Lord, to live out the beliefs that we claim are our possession, to show that we are indeed your possession. May your name be glorified. We ask the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.